The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on June the 30th, 2022. My name is Freddie Gray, I am the Deputy Editor of The Spectator, and I will be your host today. On the show this week, we'll be talking about The Spectator's cover piece, which is The Cold War. This is a reference to the fact that Germany might be coming up for a very, very cold winter if Vladimir Putin turns off the gas taps. I'll be joined by Wolfgang Munchau and Gideon Rackman. Next, we'll talk about politics with James Forsyth and Katie Balls. Boris Johnson has been jetting about the world, desperately trying to escape his domestic troubles. Has he had any luck? And then we'll be moving to America, where we'll be talking about the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. A lot of Democrats are up in arms about the decision, but do they really want to change the law in order to protect abortion rights? I'll be talking to Kate Andrews about her piece in this week's magazine. Changing tack, we'll look at cryptocurrency, which uh, only a year ago seemed like one of the greatest investments ever and now looks like a bit of a disaster. Jamie Bartlett, has done a podcast, a very successful podcast, called The Missing Crypto Queen, uh, about an enormous financial scam involving something called OneCoin. I'll be talking to him uh, about the scam and about cryptocurrency generally. And finally, why do people like going to watch septuagenarian and octogenarian rock stars strut about on stage? I'll be talking to Rachel Johnson, about the phenomenon of very, very old bands performing very, very old songs for middle-aged people. But before we start with all that, I would like to encourage you to take out a subscription to The Spectator. We have a fantastic offer at the moment for just £1 a week. You can have full digital, that's online and app access to all of The Spectator's content. Uh, And if you want the print magazine, and I think you should want the print magazine, Uh, you only have to pay a pound extra on top of that. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer to get that. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to The Spectator's brilliant YouTube channel? Simply click the red button at the bottom of the screen and the bell icon to make sure you never ever miss an episode. When in late February, Uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine, Uh, a lot of commentators were struck by how strongly Germany responded against Russia and for Ukraine. But we're now 126 days into the war and the international dynamics are changing. A big concern, as Wolfgang Mountchow expresses in his cover piece for The Spectator this week, is that Germany is going to face a very cold winter, simply because Vladimir Putin still holds enormous power over the country because of his control of gas and energy. I'm joined now by Wolfgang, who I should say is Director of Euro Intelligence, and Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times, who is also author of a new book, The Age of the Strongman. Wolfgang, I'll start with you. How worried is Germany uh, about whether its support for Ukraine can survive uh, what could be a cold winter? Uh, well, they are uh, at the moment more worried about the cold winter than than their support for Ukraine. Uh, what what is happening is that that Putin they, that the Russians have cut the gas throughput to the pipeline system by about fifty percent, and that means that the Germany as, the, as Germany goes into the winter, the gas storage tanks will not be full. They will be half filled. They're about fifty percent filled right now. And uh, the plan had been to fill them up to about 100% or 90%, and then that would be enough for them to 
to get through the winter with the normal gas flows resuming. The fear is that when Russia reduced those volumes, that this was the beginning of what might be a Russian gas embargo, that Russia might, might decide to cut the volumes now and to either continue to supply at reduced volumes, which, is, which would be enough for Germany to have a, uh, an energy crisis, or actually to cut the volumes altogether, uh, and then there would be no plan B. Germany does not have uh, alternative gas supplies in the short term, uh, there would be uh, there are, over two, two or three year periods that can probably do this. Uh, there, there have been talks with the Qataris, uh, but but these, the, the, there is no capacity uh, in Qatar for, uh, for for further sales to Germany. The Americans want to supply more more liquid gas, liquid uh, natural gas, uh, and they will. Uh, but it will not be enough to make up these enormous shortfalls that would would result from a Russian from a Russian. Embargo. Now, Putin has in the past not used gas as a, as an, as a geopolitical weapon. Uh, Nord Stream 2 was sort of a long-term strategic thing for him, but it wasn't, he never used gas, or at least in respect of Germany, he didn't use gas, he didn't cut the gas in order to, to change, uh, to, you know, to, to, for, political, for political reasons. But this is different because the Germans have already said they're going to get out of Russian gas anyway as part of the EU. EU strategy, so you know, Germ you know, he's not going to help them get this, you know, smooth, smooth, smooth out of this, out, out of their Russian contracts. So he may well be, he may well have an incentive to do this, and the result, if he did, would be uh, a very significant energy crisis uh, in Germany. And the German economics minister has warned about a Lehman-style uh, 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 event, uh, a contagious event of people. You know, of gas companies and energy companies failing and causing a ripple of uh, bankruptcies throughout the energy sector. And of course, uh, that, that reference to Lehman does hint that it might not just be Germany. It could, be, uh, could create a global problem because, uh, although obviously it would be terribly bad if German homes can't be heated, there's also the issue of German manufacturing needed to be powered. It would, it would have global impact, but it would certainly be European uh, it, it would certainly be a European uh, economic shock. Uh, the economic impact assessments are very different. Economists have come as, as often in these cases diff to different results. But the credible ones that I've been looking at look talk about a recession to the tune of minus five to minus seven percent of GDP. That's a lot. If you have these, uh, if you have these sort of contagion effects, um, th there could be this could this could ripple through Europe. The other thing that that we have, the other problem that we have is that if, if Putin cuts the gas to Germany, what, you know, will Germany still supply gas to other EU countries? Or, you know, as they do now, because, there is, and is there a solidarity? I mean, I was talking about the solidarity with Ukraine in the article, but I was, you know, there's another factor of the, EU, of the solidarity between EU members. Uh, will there be enough EU solidarity to share the gas that they have, or will it be, you know, it, it arrives in my country first and we'll use it up. And, you know, if, if you don't have it, that's your bad luck. So we have to see about this. Uh, but it's not exactly a, a you know, a, a solidarity test that people would probably relish at this point. Gideon, I'll bring you in. Um, Donald Trump, uh, one of the strong men in your book, mm. uh, was much mocked um, when he said things like, uh, uh, Germany is totally controlled by Russia. Um, however, as we've gone forwards in time, uh, it seems like Trump had a pretty good point, wouldn't you say? Well, totally controlled, I think, was probably overstating it. I mean, as you've seen by the strength of the German reaction to what uh, Russia's done in Ukraine. In fact, they've changed their foreign policy uh, really pretty significantly. But I think Trump had a point that Germany had over many years unwisely allowed itself to become very, very reliant on Russian gas. Uh, they didn't really believe that Russia would ever use this weapon. You heard, for example, that even throughout the Cold War during crises, Russia always continued to supply Germany with gas. But now Germany itself, along with the European Union, has decided that this dependency is too dangerous uh, and that they're going to wean themselves off. You know, a senior German official said to me a few weeks ago that Putin, before the war, was looking at 30 years of stable oil and gas revenues uh, from Europe, and now he's looking at three years. But those three years could be very bumpy for the reasons that uh, Wolfgang lays out, that it's, you, know, there's, it, you, you can't just find new sources of gas that easily. 
um, all the places they're looking for will either take time to develop or already committed. So yeah, they could have a very rough winter. But from um, you know Putin's point of view, I could see why it would be very tempting to do this, pure anger apart from anything else. But there's only one way I think it works for him strategically, is if it really destabilizes Germany so much that you get a rise of radical parties such as the AFD that are much more sympathetic to Russia and really change German foreign policy. That's one possible outcome, but I think it's just as likely that it hardens German and European views that Russia is a danger and we're in, locked into a long-term conflict with them. So I'm not sure it's a wise policy for Putin to pursue, but then invading Ukraine is probably not a wise policy. So you don't think there's, uh, do you think there is a chance that he'd do this? Because it would seem to be uh, further economic suicide from Putin to uh, actually force European countries who've talked about moving away from gas for a long time but not actually done it, to move away to alternative sources of energy. Yeah, I mean, who knows? But, um, you know, we've all kind of, got, or a lot of people have got what was in his head wrong. Uh, he may just be waving the weapon in, in the hope that this will force or persuade the Europeans to put more pressure on Ukraine to, uh, to come to the negotiating table. Uh, but I suppose you could also argue from the Russian point of view, in a sense, they've already inflicted this strategic loss on themselves. They know that uh, if the Europeans are as good as their word and, and can follow through, that, that Russian sales of gas to Europe will end in about three to five years. And that's a big problem for them because they don't have the pipeline capacity yet to redirect it to China. And as we saw with Nord Stream 2, constructing these new pipelines takes many, many years. So maybe it's a sort of a scenario where he says, well, you've damaged us, we're going to try and damage you. But, um, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, Putin will have thought it through probably quite carefully. It's interesting talking to sort of senior executives of the oil and gas multinationals who say that talking to Putin was like talking to one of their peers. He had an incredible command of the oil and gas industry and Russian economics. But obviously, the bigger picture for him is geopolitical. And uh, he doesn't have that many good options, to be honest. I, you know, as you were saying, Russia's doing a bit better in the war now. But if you look at their strategic overall picture, you know, if this war was about NATO enlargement, well, Sweden and, and Finland have just, you know, been agreed to join NATO. So NATO's had its biggest enlargement for a very long time. And um, obviously the Russian economy is shrinking. They've taken big losses on the battlefield. So uh, t he's got a few tacti tactics he can use, but strategically, I think he's in a bad spot. Wolfgang, you, you touched on nuclear power. Um, the, the Greens are in uh, Germany's governing coalition now, uh, and they do not want to um, stop the commitment to, to eliminating nuclear power. Uh, and presumably they do not want to go back to coal uh, as, a, as a source of German energy. Um, how much are environmental concerns getting in the way of dealing with what is a, a serious looming emergency in the energy sector? Right. Thank you for the question. I'm, I'm going to answer it in a, in, in a few seconds, but let me just make one additional comment to what, what Gideon says, and I think his, his, his analysis is right, that Putin doesn't have, uh, you know, Putin, Putin's, you know, Putin may be over, very much overplaying his hand. But we, we have to consider two factors here. First of all, he got himself an awful lot of money through the rise in oil and gas prices. Uh, I, you know, I've sort of been doing the maths on what his likely current account surplus is likely to be this year. And we're looking at 200 to 250 billion euro uh, dollars. Uh, that's almost as much as the money we froze, as the assets the West have frozen. Uh, this is a huge amount of money. And the, the gas sales are still very profitable for him, especially now that the gas prices are rising as a result of his decision to cut the throughput. Uh, he will make more money by selling less gas. That is quite a possible, possible thing, but he, he is in a position to afford it. Uh, he is not, uh, you know, he, his problem is spending the cash, it's not getting it. Um, and the, in the medium term, his strategic option uh, is very much to, to supply uh, uh, the, 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 the parts of the world that are not the West, you know, Africa, India, China, uh, he's got, a, you know, there are a number of countries that would, would still buy Russian products and that might also supply Russia with electrical components, the one that he is really not getting from the West. 
asking about uh, getting back to your question on the nuclear on the nuclear power for the greens i mean if you're sort of you're sitting here in the uk and if you you know you would you wouldn't think twice about this because nuclear power seems to be you know these are German nuclear power stations are some of the safest in the world. They're, they're built to the highest standards. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those the power stations that are being that are being decommissioned now. They're, they're still they're, the three are still running. They supply about six percent of the electricity. With all this stuff happening, you would probably not want to have another you know shortfall of, of electricity on top of the gas situation. So it would be a rational, almost a no-brainer. However, if you know if you understand the history of the Green Party, it was their opposition to nuclear power that uh you know that got them into politics uh this is the the this is sort of uh, as principled and and as as difficult for them an issue as like you know europe was for the conservative party it's not something that they can easily just dump and, and say okay well we'll do it and you know it's it's because it's rational and robert harbeck clearly you know I, I don't think he would have a strong personal view on this matter and as an economics minister he's probably you know he knows the he knows the numbers and he would probably say fine we will we'll do this but as a as a politician he would struggle to to do this unless he he had no other choice so the, the what i think is going to happen is they will definitely not discuss this at the moment but should putin cut the gas and should there be a mayhem and you know and he might just ask his party you know shall we keep the nuclear power stations running for another three years or shall we start commissioning coal? What do you think? I think he might just get away with the with the pro prolongation of the of the power station. I actually would go further because there have been three stations cut at the end of last year that can still be recommissioned. It's possible technically. Uh, there are legal obstacles, as you know, in Germany everything is always legal obstacles. But technically, they could actually get twelve to thirteen percent of electricity uh, back online, and that's quite a lot. Uh, that to me would have been the the, the most logical uh, emergency plan to to fix a, a a a you know clear and present danger because ten percent is a lot of a lot of energy uh, that you would have to replace in a in a in a in a period when gas uh, and oil and coal is, is hugely expensive. So you know these this discussion will be held. I'm I'm told the three uh, the three uh, nuclear uh, stations from from last year will stay shut because nobody has the appetite to go through a protracted legal battle. But I would still think that the ones that are still operational today, uh, that those are possibly still in play, despite of what you what you're hearing officially. Gideon, your, your book is about how strongmen such as Putin uh, are increasingly sort of define global politics in the 21st century. And um, when you look at this relationship between Russia and Germany, does it not suggest that strongmen leaders uh, have advantages uh, in a time of rising geostrategic tensions? Um, they have advantages over uh, democratically elected people and, and or more democratically elected people and the pressures they face at home. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, I would in my book, I've been often been accused of being excessively gloomy, but I, I think that you know, arguably what Putin has done in Ukraine actually reveals the weakness of a strongman style system because uh, there was nobody to say to him, look, this is crazy or you've got to get through this, this through Parliament. Uh, things were so centralised around him that he was able to take a decision that even his own foreign minister apparently didn't really know about until the day before. Um, so, and it looks like, for the reasons I set out, that it will be a big strategic uh, setback for Russia, that's putting it mildly, not to speak of the kind of economic and political cultural uh, aspects of it. So I think, uh, you know, yes, he has more, he has the ability to make rapid decisions to manoeuvre quickly in this situation, but he also has the ability to inflict a disaster on his country, which I think he's done. And by contrast, I mean, I think that although clearly uh, you know, you can point at all these arguments about nuclear power and say, for God's sake, this is ridiculous. We should be able to move quicker. Actually, I think that the democratic countries of the West move pretty fast, uh, you know, in imposing now six packages of sanctions. Uh, these are, you know, 27 EU countries, the UK, the US, Canada, Japan, Australia, South Korea, all came together um, and slightly confounded the image of this sort of slow-moving democratic West that was unable to get its act together. Wolfgang and Gideon, we'll end it there, but thank you very much indeed for coming on.
Let's move on to the week in politics. Boris Johnson has just returned from an eight-day tour of the world where he has been stopping in at various conferences and coming up with various proposals along with other world leaders. One upshot of all this is that the UK has now committed an additional one billion uh, to give to Ukraine's war chest. Um, I'm joined now by James Forsyth and Katie Balls to talk about this. James, it's quite obvious that Boris is more comfortable on the foreign front than the domestic front. Uh, has it been a, a reasonably successful week for him? Yeah, he's reached that stage in his premiership where these foreign summits and meetings were, uh, are, are a kind of blessed relief from the toil and difficulties of domestic politics. And I think you could, you could see that he was enjoying himself in a way that he hasn't been domestically uh, with, with all the difficulties with the leadership and, and the like uh, on the world stage. He also had uh, at the um, G7 summit and at the NATO meeting, he had an argument to make about uh, how the West has a responsibility to ensure that Ukraine goes into any negotiations with Russia in the strongest possible position. And I think that you know, one, I think there was a worry uh, in Whitehall before these uh, G7 and NATO summits that some of that striking alliance unity you'd had at the beginning of this conflict was beginning to fray, with people beginning to worry about what was going to happen this winter. And in the end, there was, I think, more unanimity and more agreement about the need to uh, bolster the weaponry being sent to Ukraine, to ensure, to, to ensure that any peace is made on terms that the Ukrainians are happy with, that than had been expected beforehand, and I think you know, and I think that I think that the alliance, that sense, I think will lead to uh, probably a step up in the amount of military equipment being sent to Ukraine. Whether that will be enough to to turn the tide of the fighting in the east, kind of remains to be seen. I thought the other striking thing about the NATO summit was the the move in terms of just how significant uh, the NATO change in approach on its eastern border. It's previously NATO relied on these kind of tripwire forces. It is now going to have a much more substantial presence there, a kind of presence that was designed to be able to halt a kind of Russian advance. I also think you can see in all the references to China in this new NATO strategic concept and the fact that Japan and South Korea and Australia were invited to the summit, you know, where this debate goes next. Because however um, brutal the Russian war in Ukraine is, you know, in, in terms of the great power competition of this century, the most significant great power competition is going to be between the US and its allies and China for the question of, of who dominates the 21st century. Do you think democracies versus autocracies is going to be the, the theme of the, the coming months? I, I think what kind of world we live in, and I think obviously there, there is, a, there is, there is a, a flashpoint there in Taiwan, which you know I, I personally am a subscriber to the, to the theory advanced by the American uh, strategist and academic Hal Brand, so, you know, but the, 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 the US-China competition is going to be the most intense in the next decade. Um, in that, ultimately, uh, China is a, a peaking power. And I think 10 years from now, it will be clear that, that it is caught in the middle income trap. It is going to be a less significant force than it looks. So it has this decade to try and change the facts on the ground. And I think that makes a, an assault on Taiwan within the next 10 years um, highly likely. And that is obviously going to be an even more disruptive event, uh, both uh, uh, in military terms and economically, than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I thought you were making a peaking pun there, but uh, I, I don't, you wouldn't be so, so gauche as to, to, to use such an old-fashioned name. Uh, Katie, moving on to you. Um, there is, despite all the commitment uh, towards NATO from various statesmen, uh, there is this odd story or this, this sort of suggestion of some discontent within government about Britain's commitment to NATO because Ben Wallace seems to be pushing for more uh, and the government seems to be pushing for slightly less. What's going on there? Yes, yeah, so this week uh, it emerged that the government has dropped one of its manifesto uh, pledges, which is effectively to rise defence spending with inflation or keep them in line. Now, of course, this is in the face of 
uh, soaring inflation. Um, but it still caused some unrest if you think about the current situation in Ukraine, the fact that lots of Tory MPs believe that this shows you should be investing more, not less. And there is uh, some you know, private letters that somehow reports have emerged publicly between Ben Wallace and others. Now, the Defence Secretary has tried to play down the row, but has said that he is happy with spending for now, um, but effectively from 2024, um, he thinks there should be more defence spending. Now, that is around the time that you would expect, despite some of the rumours of early elections, the government to be looking for re-election, the Tory party to be going to the polls. And therefore, I think we, we're seeing a, a situation where people are talking about, you know, what would probably, I imagine, be a manifesto pledge of more spending at the next election. Um, now, I think that there are two things here. One is that the government is developing a reputation for dropping its manifesto commitments. And of course, they will say, well, we've had a very difficult time of a pandemic and others, but it's quite a long list now if you go through it. And then secondly, I think because Boris Johnson's position is unstable, and um, despite the fact he has been, you know, living it up on the world stage in recent days and looks comfortable doing so, he still has many domestic problems at home, lots of uncertainty and doubt right now amongst his own ministers about whether he will lead them into the next election, um, even if Boris Johnson is still talking about a third term. Um, therefore, I think we're seeing that if we do end up in a Tory leadership contest before the next election, defence spending is going to be a really key part of that. Um, some people are suggesting that um, Wallace, who is uh, 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 one of the favourites to replace Boris um, as Prime Minister, um, should Boris go, maybe sort of trying to manoeuvre slightly here, which would be odd considering he's been uh, very much, a, as I understand it, a, a Boris Johnson loyalist so far. Yeah, it's not, it's not a pledge that's going to do you badly amongst the membership, is it, if, you're, if you look like you're the one who's asking for more um, defence spending. And Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has made similar soundings in, in the past few months. And it's the Treasury, uh, and particularly Rishi Sunak, that I think they want to differentiate from, uh, with Rishi Sunak, who was seen as a leadership frontrunner, a bit less so since, since the non-DOM row, as someone who's saying, actually, we, we need to have some spending discipline right now if you look at the general fiscal picture. Um, I think, therefore, you can read in all these things because of Boris Johnson's instability, a sense that a potential candidates are showing a bit of leg. Now, I think a figure such as Ben Wallace is loyal to the Prime Minister as much as a minister is these days. Um, but I think the argument you hear some MPs making privately is it's not disloyal to think about what your leadership campaign should be just in case the Prime Minister doesn't make it. And I think since the confidence vote, some of these ministers believe they have a bit of licence to actually think about what would happen in the event of a leadership contest, um, given there is so much talk about uh, another no confidence vote before the year is out. James, uh, the Prime Minister now returns to domestic matters and it's looking pretty brutal again for him. Uh, the Privileges Committee, which a lot of the rebels uh, are quite excited about um, in terms of really hurting him. Uh, there's a suggestion today that uh, people in number 10 think it will be a, a kind of kangaroo court. How bad do you think uh, the Privileges Committee is going to be for him? I think the Privileges Committee is the biggest risk for him because if he is found to have deliberately uh, misled Parliament, I mean, you know, that, that is clearly game over. That is the most, you know, that, that is a straight out resigning matter under, under the ministerial code. And I think in those circumstances, there's no doubt that the 922 Committee executive would, would, would change the rules. I, I think that I think number 10 have to be very careful in terms of how they play this. You know, they tried to put some pressure on the committee not to appoint Harriet Harman as the chair. She was appointed as the chair yesterday. And I think as they did with the Sue I think there is a danger that, you know, you saw Liz Truss today being very careful to distance herself from those, you know, those anonymous comments about it being a kangaroo court, saying that she trusted the committee implicitly to do, it, to do its job. I, I think the worry for Boris Johnson is that the thing he will have to explain to the committee is why he did not correct the record as quickly as possible. Because, you know, it is accepted under kind of parliamentary rules that sometimes ministers and the prime minister will say things that are inaccurate, but they believe to be accurate at the time that they say it. But what, what they are meant to do when they realise that what they said was inaccurate is correct the record a, a, as quickly as possible. But that clearly didn't happen in this case. And Boris Johnson, you know, he can say that, look, he didn't want to do this because he didn't want to look like he was undermining or the Sue Gray report or, 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 or the police inquiry. But I think he will have to explain that fact. And that, that, that is what is, I think, is going to be most difficult for him. James and Katie, thank you very much indeed. 
Now, on Friday in America, the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, the decision that had made abortion legal at the federal level since 1973. There's been a lot of uproar about it uh, all over the world. Um, but as Kate Andrews says in her piece today, um, the Supreme Court has not banned abortion in America. It has returned the matter to the elected representatives. But Kate, as you suggest in your piece, America's elected representatives are not terribly keen, it seems, to address the matter. So this is the deep worry. As you point out there, Fred, the Supreme Court has not banned abortion. It actually makes very clear in the majority opinion that they feel that this is simply not a decision that should have ever been made at the Supreme Court level and that it is a question for the legislatures, whether that be on the federal level, the state level. It's a question for politicians if they want to protect women's rights in this way to pass some laws. Of course, Congress hasn't done that, and I think part of the fear that you can sense in America right now uh, really stems from the fact that it's not obvious at all that politicians want to or are capable of coming to the table to have a sensible conversation about this, because for decades now, the Supreme Court has acted as sort of a judicial umbrella under which people could use the topic of abortion and women's rights to make a lot of political points, to try to gather votes around election times, never really thinking that they'd have to act on whatever they were proposing. Uh, and so now we're in a very difficult situation where we're, we're very divided in America. Uh, you know, it's, it's very much the Democrats versus the Republicans, and we have a midterm election coming up. And so you have everyone, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, talking about how we can solve this issue in the next election. And you should read that as vote Democrat or on the other side, vote Republican. And it really feels like actually women's rights and trying to talk about this now sensibly and come to some kind of perhaps compromise on the federal level is secondary to winning votes. Well, is this part of the culture war problem in America that's been going on for decades now? Uh, and abortion is perhaps the, the, the biggest and longest running culture war fight, um, that both political parties have got so used to using these issues to, to gin up the base. Uh, and as a result, they don't actually want to um, resolve them because they are useful mechanisms, similar perhaps to, to the fight over gun rights. And there was a, there was a, a law was passed last week on gun rights last week. Um, but these are issues that fire up the base, but, but politicians don't actually want to resolve them precisely because they fire up the base. Mm, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it was very grating, frankly, to see former President Barack Obama tweeting out what a devastating decision this was from the Supreme Court, encouraging people to knock on doors and to vote to change it, when he, of course, had a supermajority when he came into the Oval Office in 2009, and he could have codified abortion rights uh, into law with his supermajority, and actually said at the time that it wasn't a legislative priority. You know, I'm, I'm pleased that the Democrats think this is a priority now, but as I write in the piece, and maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, I'm sure a lot of people will say I'm being optimistic here, but I really believe that if women's rights and, and the right to access an abortion were at the top of, of people's uh, priority list, that right now Joe Biden would be speaking to some more of the liberal Republicans, particularly Suzanne Collins, the Republican senator from Maine, uh, and some of her colleagues um, who, who themselves are interested in a more narrow but still defined scope to uh, uh, legalize abortion at the federal level to try to come up with some compromise, some solution. I, I propose in the piece maybe say a 12-week backstop in which women across America have the right to access abortion at, at up to 12 weeks and then states could legislate further if they want. That will obviously upset a lot of people on the pro-life side who don't see any negotiation to be had. It will frustrate a lot of people in, in the pro-choice side who, who would see 12 weeks as a big step backwards. But what I'm trying to get at is, you know, Biden needs 60 votes in the Senate to actually pass some serious legislation on this. And whilst I can't immediately tally 60, I can get quite close looking at some of the statements that were made from Republican senators after uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned last week. He should at least be trying. He should be trying to negotiate. This is, after all, how he sold himself to the public, moderate Joe. It's, it's reasons like people like me voted for him in 2020 because I, I did think that when he promised unity, he, he meant it to some some degree. Um, but I want to be very clear that there's, there's really ugly stuff coming out from the Republican side. Talk about how we need to uh, ban abortion at the federal level now, no state's choice in this at all, about how we need to criminalize the women and doctors who do this. Um, both sides 
almost dare I say, seem to be enjoying the political vitriol a bit too much. And what's happening in real time is millions of women are losing access to abortion in their state in practically every circumstance. So I think if we wanted to do something that was in, in many ways a compromise, but I think also common sense given how divided America still is on this issue, we, Joe Biden and, and the more liberal Republicans could be trying to get there. But um, I just don't, I don't see that, that progress trying to be made. Do you think uh, the Democrats, who clearly think that uh, this issue will now help them uh, change the narrative ahead of the midterms uh, and, as we said earlier, fire up the base, do you think they might be overreading um, the situation and perhaps not realising that the broad uh, swathe of American opinion is not really in line uh, with where most Democrats are, at least publicly, on this issue, which is pretty hardcore, on the pretty hardcore end of the pro-choice position. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that Democrats, Joe Biden even, would say uh, that abortion should be safe, legal and rare, which is generally thought to be, polls would suggest, uh, the consensus position in America. So the majority of Americans do support the right that, to access abortion, and it's around 67, so close to 70% of Americans support it in that first trimester, which is why I mentioned up to 12 weeks in my piece. As you point out, Freddie, the Democrats did bring legislation to the floor in May, claiming that they were trying to codify abortion rights into law. But in my opinion, it was a stunt designed to fail. Because if you look at what was in that legislation, it was very radical. It essentially created loopholes so you could access abortion throughout your full nine months of pregnancy. Uh, and that was never, ever going to garner Republican support. It actually lost a few Democrats as it was going through. I think that was designed to be able to say in the midterms, look, we tried to do this. You need to give us more votes. You need to give us a supermajority so that we can codify abortion laws. But, um, you know, I think a lot of voters will see through that. As you say, the, the majority of Americans are, are pretty confident on where they stand on the issue. And it is a liberal, a classically liberal leaning towards a woman's right to choose, but it, it isn't extreme. Um, and I think a lot of the support for the Democrats around Roe may already be baked into some of the polling. I, I've no doubt it's going to help them in the midterms, but what I'm deeply worried about um, is that this may be the last chance for a genuine bipartisan compromise for quite a while, because if the Democrats miscalculate this and the Republicans do take the House and possibly the Senate, then you have complete gridlock, chances of compromise are near zero, and we're in the situation we're in now, which, which is one I don't like as somebody who supports the women's right to choose in which, as I said, millions of women across various states are losing access to abortion in their state in almost every circumstance. Um, so I think now is the time. The Democrats have majorities in the House and the Senate, but they're slim and they're Republicans who seem like they might be willing to talk about this. This is the moment to come up with something that isn't too extreme at either ends. Um, and I'm also worried about something rather extreme coming in on either end full stop, even if, even if Joe Biden were, say, to get his supermajority. If they pass legislation around such a contentious issue like abortion, a very emotive issue that seems really partisan, then the chances that it's going to be overturned by the Republicans when they get in and the other party always gets in eventually is significantly higher. Uh, you know, I, I envy European countries looking at the fact that they have already gone through that democratic process and that public debate around women's rights and have more or less settled the issue. America, because of Roe v. Wade, um, really didn't do that. It actually decided to, to use it as, a, as an election point, as we've spoken about. And we never had a, a serious grown-up conversation between the two sides. So we're like 50 years behind in this conversation, and we're having to have it now. And I fear that our politicians are simply not up to doing so. Do you ever think that perhaps in Britain and European countries, uh, as you suggest, that, that the question has been settled politically, uh, but ha perhaps, again, the political classes are slightly out of touch with the public. For instance, uh, Danny Kruger, uh, the Tory MP yesterday in Parliament, uh, advanced what sounded to me anyway like a rather mild pro-life case and said this, is a, this should be a subject for debate and it's not for us to lecture Americans about it. And he's been sort of widely slammed for having said that. Um, which suggests that the, the appetite for debate in Britain, it's not that it's just settled, it's that there isn't any willingness to have the debate. 
I listened to Danny Kruger's comments in full, and while I'm not sure I agreed with everything that he said coming from a more pro-choice perspective, I, I didn't find his comments insulting or in any way dangerous, as I think a lot of people have tried to suggest. I think the heat around his comments comes from the fact that Roe v. Wade has just been overturned. And there has been this uncomfortable thing happening here in the UK where some commentators and politicians have wanted to suggest that what's just happened in America is now coming for the UK. And I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that. So when somebody like Kruger stands up and gives anybody, not it's not ammo, but gives them what they think might in some circumstances be a little bit of ammo, they try to use it. Um, and and so to your point, Fred, I, I think his wider comments were about the fact that here in the UK we can discuss abortion and people don't you know people don't become enraged usually people don't become deeply angry and they don't make horrible accusations immediately whereas in the states um, it is really difficult under almost any circumstance to have a public conversation about abortion that isn't very very ugly uh, and I think that's the point he was trying to make and I, I think it has just been convenient for some people to take that out of context. Kate, I'm going to cut you off there because we're in danger of having uh, a reasonable conversation. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Fred. Now, as anybody who has had any interest in the world of cryptocurrency knows, um, it's a place that is full of scams, Ponzi schemes, swindlers and scammers. And perhaps the best example uh, of this is the story of OneCoin and its founder, Ruja Ignatova. Jamie Bartlett, who joins us now, is the maker of a brilliant podcast called The Missing Crypto Queen, which is now a brilliant book. Jamie, for our listeners and viewers who don't uh, know the story, can you give us a little bit of an outline of this rather extraordinary and, and quite sad tale? Yeah, the, the re thanks for thanks for having me. The really quick version of this is in in 2014, so quite a while ago now. This woman, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, Bulgarian German, she comes out of nowhere and basically tells the world, "You've heard about Bitcoin. Lots of people making lots of money. It's going to change gl global finance forever. I've got a new one. It's better. It's easier. It's simpler. It's called OneCoin." And within 18 months, about a million people from 175 countries had invested close to sort of three to four billion euros into this, thinking they'd bought the next Bitcoin. The value of their coins was going up. They were logging on, checking them. They'd spent all of their money on it, but they could never turn those coins back into real money. And then in October 2017, Dr. Ruja takes a Ryanair flight from Sofia, Bulgaria, to Athens, Greece, and disappears into thin air. And all the money's gone and um, she is still on the run. And the whole thing was a brilliantly designed pyramid scheme, essentially, with a cryptocurrency branding on top of it. Well, for, for my sins, I've, I've had some experience of uh, crypto pyramid schemes. And one can be forgiven for thinking that the whole cryptocurrency world is itself uh, a Ponzi scheme at times. Did you, do you feel that, that there's a sort of legitimate world of crypto still? Yeah, I do actually. I think there's there's different there's a difference between something like Bitcoin, which yeah, it's highly speculative. It's a risky investment. It goes up and it goes down. But there is something interesting about a, the idea of digital fixed supply currency that operates outside governments and central banks. That's sort of secured by mathematics. The problem is running alongside that is a load of chancers and scammers who think, oh, no one really understands this technology. I'll pretend I've made the next one. And investors who are desperate to get a thousand percent return on their investment are pouring their money into those scam ones as well. And it's very, very hard for an ordinary person to tell the difference from one to the other because they look kind of indistinguishable in many ways. One coin was a bit different because it was really a straight up pyramid scheme. I mean, it was sold in a pyramid fashion. You would buy the coins and then you'd recruit people to buy coins who'd then recruit people to buy coins and you'd get commissions from every sale that you made. So it really was designed like a pyramid scheme. So it's slightly different from Bitcoin. It didn't really ever have any technology behind it and Bitcoin does. But it's the weird thing, it's a kind of gray zone between the legitimate ones and the illegitimate ones. A lot of them look the same. 
There's shades of grey for all of them. One coin just happens to be a kind of outlier as just an out and out scam. Something that comes out uh, in the Missing Crypto Queen is uh, the sort of cult-like nature of it. And you see this a lot in crypto land, crypto world, uh, where people develop a sort of religious faith in the coin they invest in. Um, and yeah. it's almost a sort of prosperity gospel thing. It's, if you believe in it hard yeah. enough, you will make money. Yeah. Which, is, which, is, which makes sense as well, because in a way it can become a bit self-fulfilling. Because if everyone does believe in a pyramid scheme, the pyramid can keep going for a very, very long time. So no, no one's incentivized to blow the whistle on it because they all want to. They all want the the, the jamboree to carry on. But with one coin, they they really did sort of raise up the founder, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, as this godlike figure, this genius, and an incredible founder who was going to not only revolutionize global finance but also make you personally rich. And once you've put your money into it, you're kind of so invested, not only financially, but emotionally, that you buy into all of this stuff as well. OneCoin even had a kind of a little hand gesture that they'd go to they'd go to sort of stadiums and arenas full of thousands of screaming OneCoin fans and make this hand sign at each other. You know, we're part of the club, we're OneCoiners, although obviously that was ultimately the value of the coin, zero. So it was kind of lost on them all. But yeah, they, they cultivated it. But there is there is something deeper about pyramid schemes that it can become self-fulfilling for a while. And if you're in at the top early, you can actually make money from these things. And what is the latest on Ruja? Do, do, is, is there any chance of her being called? Well, I mean, if you read my book, you'll find out that we've made quite a lot of developments, actually, in, in, in what happened to her after she disappeared and where we think she is. But alongside the things that we've tried to discover, uh, the authorities are finally sort of closing in on this. It's like six, seven years too late. They should have been doing this in 2015. And the annoying thing about slow regulation in a world of fast-moving tech is that it takes 18 months for a million people to invest their money. And if you're going to then clamp down on it five years later, it's too late. The money's tied up all around the world in these sort of offshore accounts and so on. But just a month ago, Europol finally put Dr. Ruja on their most wanted list, their most wanted criminals list. Interpol issued a red notice. The German government started ask, started putting up billboards and posters of Ruja's face saying, have you seen this woman? 5,000 euro reward for information that could lead to her arrest. And they've apparently received a load of tip-offs. Uh, but they have also said that her and people with her are likely to be armed. So if you do see her, Fred, don't go, you know, just give me a call rather than trying to apprehend her yourself. I'll go, I'll go straight to you, Jamie. I'll, Please. <laughs> before the authorities, before Interpol. Uh, <laughs> I, do, I do wonder, though, I, I, I th thought your podcast was brilliant and, and I'm glad it's had all the success it deserves. But do you not find it slightly weird that a lot of the biggest hits, sort of media hits of the last few years have been about scams? I mean, you think about... Uh, the Fire Festival documentary, uh, the the blood one. What was it called? Bad blood. Bad blood. Bad yeah. Blood. The dropout. Uh, yeah. There's the Tinder swindler, which was a bit late to the game, but was got a lot of interest. We seem to be obsessed with the way that we can be ripped off through the internet. Um, presuming that's just because a lot of people are being ripped off through the internet. I totally agree with you. I've been thinking about this exact question. Like we have become a nation obsessed with true crime scam stories i can't quite work out why it is maybe you're right maybe it's because partly the majority of crime now takes place online and then they're never re i mean the police are so far behind this the, the prosecution rate for various online fraud and online crime is negligible so maybe we we try to make up for it by watching these shows and <laughs> trying to figure out for ourselves what's going on because we know the police aren't going to help us. But there is a strange fascination, not only with um, true crime, but with women involved in true crime. Because if you think about Theranos, it was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Holmes. Mm. Uh, inventing Anna was that other oh, yes. one, the woman. That, so, yeah, and, and, and obviously Dr. Ruja as well something's going on and I, I i've got to be honest i should i should know the answer to that because it because i'm part of the problem uh sort of well it, i suppose we worship we worship the rise and the fall don't we and, and we we yeah. we we adore these people when that when the scam's working 
Uh, and even when we know it's still working. as well, isn't there? Like, oh, look, at I'm not so stupid as to invest all my money in a Ponzi, in a gigantic Ponzi scheme. Yeah, uh, I just bought loads secretly, of NFTs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have invested in one coin. I put all my money in DAG coin, which is actually the. <laughs> So, that, so, so there is a strange fascination with it, and because it, it's everywhere, but never seemingly prosecuted, it's like the the podcasts and TV shows are doing doing the job of the police of showing these people finally getting their comeuppance. Uh, Jamie, are you working on a, another podcast to do with scams? Hopefully, do you know what I kind of am, but I'm not allowed to tell you anything about it. But we're still, yeah, 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 yeah. But we're still working on the missing crypto queen as well. There's going to be some new episodes coming out soon because the story is still unfolding and that's partly because a million people are still hoping to get their money back and that can take a very very long time when ponzi schemes collapse well we better wrap it up there but um many congratulations on the success uh, of the podcast and i'm sure the book um, and thanks for coming on thank you very much right let's talk about viagra hair dye and very very old rockers Uh, Last weekend was Glastonbury and the headline act um, on the Friday was Billie Eilish, who is 20 years old. Um, But the rest of the weekend, uh, not just at Glastonbury, but in Hyde Park, was dominated by ageing rockers. Elton John, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney. Rachel Johnson was in uh, Hyde Park on Saturday night. Rachel Johnson, who is the oldies pop culture critic. Um, Rachel... Why is Britain so enthralled to just going to concerts performed by very, very old people? (laughs) I might point out that um, I did back to back. I did Elton John, Sir Elton on Friday night. And the following night, the Saturday night, I was in Hyde Park for a second night running for the Stones. And then I think there were a further gaggle of ageing rockers. I think the Eagles played on Sunday night. So it's been, you know... I'm not saying the summer of love, but the summer of um, Viagra, really, hasn't it? Because it was an astonishing experience to know that my children, a generation below me, were watching the youngest ever headliner at Glastonbury, followed by the oldest ever, Paul McCartney. So Billie Eilish was tw- is 20, Paul McCartney is just turned 80. Then I was watching... Mick Jagger on stage, aged 78, about to turn 79 in July. And he had more energy. I mean, if you had plugged skinny Jagger into the national grid, he could have electrified the whole show himself. I've never seen so much energy. I don't know where it comes from. So in a sense, what I think Mick Jagger set out to prove and proves is that when it comes to rock and roll, rock and roll will never die. It's He had a kind of um, inveterate energy and and of, of somebody I don't know I haven't seen many 28 year olds who could come and command the stage with the with his dancing and his strutting and his prancing so what I think he proved was that age is just a number when it comes to rock and roll but in the piece I've written for the spectator I point out that however uh, youthful that spirit is the flesh is prey to mortal uh you know a mortal cycle and these rock dinosaurs have really knocked it out of the park quite literally this last weekend this summer but you know the meteor the meteor is on its way it hasn't struck but these guys all started their shows and they talked about like paul mccartney we saw george harrison no longer with us john lennon no longer with us and ditto Charlie Watts was the whole thing opened with a, a, a montage of tribute to Charlie Watts, the drummer who who has died. So you do get the feeling that they are on the, there are they are knocking on heaven's door. Sadly. Well, as you say in the piece, they're the, they're the only people that can really sort of guarantee massive ticket sales. And the the meteor is coming. Um, we hope they live as long as possible, uh, but they can't go on forever. Um, what's what's the rock industry? What's what's the live music industry going to do uh, when it no longer has these bankable geriatrics? <laughs> well, I mean that is the question, and it is the question of of all industries, which is to maintain the the um, the audience while replenishing it as the headliners 
are aging. I mean, it's it's been it is the perennial problem, but. This is a bigger issue for rock and roll than it is for other industries because they don't make them like Mick Jagger, Elton John anymore. These guys, you know, uh, became big in the 60s, 70s, that's 60 years ago. And therefore they've got like a back catalogue that goes back 60 years. How are you going to find talent, artists that can fill Pyramid Stage or Hyde Park for two and a half hours with 25 solid gold bangers? That is going to be the challenge because festivals have grown hugely in popularity, partly because the artists love them because they make so much more money from live music than they do from record sales now because of streaming and Spotify and all the rest of it. They only net about 10% of record sales, but they can take home about 90% of the gross ticket receipts when they do an enormous gig like Glasgow Summertime Ball or um, Hyde Park British Summertime. It's, it's often been said that one of the problems with, with kind of pop culture is that the boomers, and I'm not saying for a moment that you're a boomer, you're so much <laughs> younger than that, uh, but the boomers can't let uh, the youth have their culture. Um, the boomers have to have youth culture for themselves. And so therefore they're not really letting uh, the young have a flourishing pop culture. I do think that's true. I think what's more happening is that both um, the boomers and the millennials slash Gen Z slash, you know, Wokies or whatever, they've adopted a Spotify pick and mix attitude towards their playlists. And so, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, I would listen to Top of the Pops on the radio and I'd press play on a cassette to tape the song I wanted to listen to again. I mean, now everybody has all music that has ever been written at the touch of a of an iPad, an iPad or a, or an iPhone or a computer, you know that you pay a certain amount a month or you pay nothing at all, and you have the entire smorgasbord of world music going back till the dawn of time, recorded music, at your disposal. So, I think that in a way we've seen a a, a melding and a medley effect between the generations, and you saw kids singing along to the Beatles songs kids sing along to the Rolling Stones, and oldsters, ditto, singing along to Bad Guy by Billie Eilish. Well, do, I mean, do you think it's slightly uh, cringe, to use uh, a young people's word, to, to have all this It's going. cringe to I mean, say cringe, enough, Freddie. Dancing is painful enough for young people. When you watch old people, well, those who don't have the magical properties of Mick Jagger uh, dancing, it, it, it can be quite embarrassing. Um, shouldn't old people just sort of leave it alone and, and age a bit more gracefully? Uh, well, you know, dad dancing, dad jeans, mum dancing, all of that. I mean, I think there's a place for it, mainly uh, as a comedic uh, sideshow. Mick Jagger. Weddings. Mick, yeah, weddings, exactly. Bar and bat <laughs> mitzvahs. Um, to entertain, to, to embarrass your children, basically. I mean, my, yeah. my children literally scree have always screamed and, and burst into tears whenever I wiggle my hips. And, you know, I don't care. I, I, I am always the first onto the dance floor. I'm always the last to leave the dance floor. It may be murder on the dance floor, as Sophie Ellis Baxter sang, but I don't care. It's my party, you know, and I love seeing old people dancing. It's funny, it's like seeing policemen dancing at Notting Hill Carnival. I got the impression that, that while you obviously were thrilled by Mick Jagger, uh, you said you would, uh, whatever that means, uh, but you weren't quite so um, excited by Elton John's performance. You thought he did look a bit doddery. Elton John is an amazing voice for a 75-year-old. And for a 75-year-old who's in the middle of a, a, a world tour that seems to have gone on longer than I've been alive. I mean, I think I saw his 232nd or third gig in the Farewell Yellow Brick to Road tour. I think he's just going to carry on touring forever. You know, there's never going to be a last act for Elton John. But having said that, I have to say that both those concerts I attended at, at Hyde Park, they did that brilliant thing of, of, no, of putting the audience first you know it may have been his 232nd gig but it felt like my first and that's all that's all you need to deliver as an artist honestly he really gave it his all um and you know 
how can you, how can I quibble? I couldn't actually choose between the two concerts. And I'd like to just give a shout out to the lighting designer, another person my age, called Patrick Woodroff. And that really helps the word, the staging. You saw that at Paul McCartney in Glastonbury. People were saying, was that the best gig ever? It wasn't the fact that he was sitting there in pretty good voice himself. It was the whole mise-en-scene that they now do, the fireworks, the lighting, the backdrop that shows, you know, El you know John Lennon or George Harrison. They, the lighting design and the backstage design brings so much to a concert now. You feel you're, you're sort of, it's an immersive experience. And that also totally wows the crowd as well because there's so much to look at. Most of the time people are up there with their mobile phones filming it and going home and watching it afterwards. Finally, Rachel, do you think uh, that your grandchildren will watch Billie Eilish, an octogenarian Billie Eilish, uh, on the stage in 60 years' time at some festival? That's an incredibly good question. And I think my instinct is... The USP of Billie Eilish is her youth, the fact that she wrote her tracks with her brother in their bedroom uh, when they were being homeschooled in California. And she speaks for that, you know, pandemic generation of kids who just grew up online, um, who, you know, quite an isolated experience. She didn't even go to school and then there was the pandemic. And I think she speaks for that generation. I'm not sure she's going to speak for eight subsequent decades in the same way. I think she's having her time now. Thank you, Rachel. Keep on rocking in the free world. <laughs> you make my rocking world go round, Freddie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very, very much for watching uh, Spectator TV. That's it for this week. Um, if you want to keep watching, if you want to watch this again, don't forget to click that red button at the bottom of your screen and tap the bell icon and you will never, ever miss an episode. Thanks very much. Goodbye.